Are you ready for something startling? There are nine weeks left in 2020. Um, and there was much rejoicing, right? Um, I just, just standing backstage and thinking, holy cow, it's November 1st. Uh, that is, that's just crazy to think that a whole year is almost beyond us. Um, thinking about the year, it's presented all kinds of crazy for a lot of us. Um, back during the spring and summer when uh, you were a little more limited in where you were going and maybe you were home more, uh, how many of you found some new shows to watch or to stream? Anybody? Just by show of hands? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to call you out. I'm just saying I think a lot of us did that. I know for our family, one of the shows we found uh, this summer and uh, into the fall was a show called The World's Toughest Race. It was a show that chronicled what is called an adventure race. And I have to tell you, I had never heard of an adventure race before we saw this show. I, I had heard of sprinting, and I had heard of 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons and, and whole marathons, and none of them seemed appealing to me, by the way. Um, and, and I'd heard of ultra marathons, people that would run. I, I went on a trip with World Vision one time, and the guy that was leading our team had ran a 50-mile race. Like, without stopping. Like, that's, that's amazing to me. Like, you know, I have to stop driving 50 miles to use the restroom, let alone running 50 miles, right? And so we had ultramarathons, but I heard of Ironmans where people run and they bike and they swim, but I never heard of an adventure race. In an adventure race, these athletes, these just like dedicated, diligent, persevering athletes uh, traverse hundreds of miles. In this case, the world's toughest race chronicled the eco-challenge Fiji. And so these 66 teams of these elite athletes navigated close to 300 miles of incredible terrain. Uh, they sailed, they paddleboarded, they mountain biked, they ran, they hiked, they climbed, they swam in uh, 50 degree water, like crazy stuff. And, and they, they, they enjoy it. Uh, and that, that's what the adventure race was. It's what the world's toughest race was all about. I share that because I think that the adventure race gives us a great metaphor uh, to think about uh, what it looks like, the adventure of following Jesus, of being a disciple of Jesus. The adventure race requires perseverance, endurance, diligence, dedication, uh, hard work, you name it, and, and being a disciple of Jesus for the long haul, finishing the adventure, finishing the race requires those same things of us. Now, the idea of using the race as a metaphor is not new with me. Um, Paul does this years ago. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, this is just one among many places where he speaks of the journey of following Jesus and he relates it to a race. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, now what we always have to remember with a metaphor is that uh, it helps us visualize something. It helps us understand something, but, but it's not literal. Uh, Paul is not saying that following Jesus is a race, that only one person actually gets to meet Jesus someday. He's just using it to talk about the earnestness, the, uh, the, the vigor, the vigilance with which uh, the athlete runs. Now, for Paul's audience, 
Uh, they're, they're thinking of these games that happened on this uh, isthmus that was Corinth, and they had their own games similar to the Olympic Games, and, and they could picture these athletes straining and the dedication and the work. And, and so I think that for us, if we just fast forward into 2020, uh, we could think of the adventure race, um, the varied terrain, the difficulties that a disciple faces, and yet it takes the same dedication and discipline and hard work and discipline uh, to be able to follow Jesus for the long haul and to finish. Why would I be talking about adventure racing? I thought we were talking about the Gospel of Luke. Well, I think it's going to be a helpful way to kind of package what happens in Luke chapter 17. Some of you read ahead in our digital bulletin each week that comes out on Thursdays uh, through email. If you, if you don't get it through email, you can pick it up at the uh, table just outside these doors. It will have listed for you the passage from Luke that we're going to be studying this week and in the coming weeks. If you read ahead, and I know some of you do, if you read Luke 17, 1 through 10, it's likely that as you read it, you thought to yourself, like, what? Like, how does all this go together? It feels like Jesus is saying a bunch of different things. Like, how do they connect? And, and what I would encourage you to do, especially as we're reading Luke, if you ever get to those places where you struggle to know how, how, how it's connecting, remember what Luke said at the beginning of the gospel. Luke chapter one, I write this, dear Theophilus, as an orderly account. So, so Luke has a reason. There's an order for, for why he writes how he writes, the stories of Jesus that he tells. And so sometimes we just have to linger in a little bit longer uh, to see the connection. And so I hope that we can connect the dots for you today by kind of this, having this image of the adventure race. Because what happens in Luke 17 is Jesus continues to impart what we might call parting wisdom or parting instruction for his disciples. He's moving towards the cross. He's about to die. He's about to pay the ultimate sacrifice uh, to reconcile mankind to God. And as he does so, he knows the way is gonna get even harder for his disciples. He's talked about how hard the journey is before. Uh, you may recall from our, our previous study in Luke, he talks about a uh, disciple taking up their cross and following him. He uses the picture of that Roman instrument of torture and execution. He talks about those who follow him are losing their life, and if they lose their life, then they'll find it. So he said hard words. He'll say even harder words as they get closer to the cross. He'll tell his disciples later that in this world, they will have trouble, right? But take heart, I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And so it's this idea that running the race for Jesus, following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, it is an adventure, but it's hard, it's challenging, it's difficult, and so if we can think of this, uh, instruct, these instructions Jesus gives to his disciples in Luke 17 as kind of these, these essentials that he's packing in their bag for this adventure race. Adventure racers, um, if you watch the world's toughest race, they, they all have a backpack on. Uh, they, they've packed essentials in there. And, and those things are things that they deem that they have to have to finish the race. And there are certain characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus uh, that we have to have. Now understand what, we're, we're gonna sh what I'm gonna share with you today from Luke 17. Jesus doesn't give us an exhaustive list. This isn't everything that a disciple of Jesus needs to have. This isn't every behavior that a disciple of Jesus needs to exhibit. This is just some of what Jesus imparts to them as they're moving towards his final hours. If the adventure race thing doesn't make sense, and I'll give you this one. Uh, if, if you're a parent or if you have a parent, 
They're preparing to leave for several hours. What do they typically do with the children, whether they're teenagers or, or a little bit younger? Don't you give parting instructions? Remember to feed the dog. Remember to um, actually eat. Remember to um, do this and do that. And you give a list. Now, is that list exhaustive of everything that child needs to do? No, you didn't tell them to go use the restroom. You assume they will go use the restroom if they have to, right? You assume that they will do this if they have to. But you just give them some of these essentials that need to take place while you're gone. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving these essentials, again, not exhaustive, but just a collection of things that he wants them to be, um, how he wants them to be living as they move towards uh, these final days when the road gets hard. And so we're gonna use this idea of an adventure race to see what Jesus wants us to pack in our bags. And here's the first thing. Luke chapter 17. We'll look at verses one through the first part of verse three. I forgot to say this uh, during our last worship experience, but I'll tell you uh, because I think it's important. Our verse numbers and chapter numbers were added later uh, to uh, the biblical text. And so there are times when our translators do us a favor by giving us verse numbers so we can find a place in scripture but sometimes they break up important thoughts. And so sometimes we have to stop even midway through a sentence because that's actually where one thought ends before another thought begins. And that's what happens here in Luke 17, uh, verses one through the first part of verse three. Jesus says, it says, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. What's Jesus articulating to his disciples? Well, let's just go back to the beginning of verse one. Temptations to sin are sure to come. He wants his disciples to understand that temptations will continue to exist. I think you and I need to understand that if you're a follower of Jesus, just because you've turned your life over to living for God and you're trusting in what he has done for you, it doesn't mean temptation stops. What's temptation? That's that enticement to do things contrary to what God wants for us. It's the enticement to sin, the enticement to seek pleasure, to seek joy, to seek life and fulfillment in things that are opposed to what God wants for us. Those temptations will continue until the day you and I die. Why? Because we have an adversary. We call him Satan. In fact, his name means the adversary. He's opposed to God. We see it from the very beginning, Genesis chapter three. He wants to distract and dissuade and discourage and, and lead followers of God on a detour. And so we will always face temptation. So Jesus says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but here's the warning to these disciples but woe to the one through whom they come. He says, be warned if you're the one that actually brings that temptation to someone else. And then he gives that gruesome picture. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. Let's just start there for a moment. What's a millstone? Uh, a millstone, this huge hundreds upon hundreds of pounds, probably thousands of pounds stone that was actually uh, put into a, a grooved area and that stone would roll and it would crush grain, it would crush salt, sometimes it would crush soft stone, it would pulverize it. 
And, and, and a donkey typically or a, a, some type of other livestock would, would pull that stone around. It was huge. And, and so Jesus says, if you cause someone to sin, basically you bring the temptation to them, it's better for you than if you, had, if you had a millstone hung around your neck, which you have a rope tied to this thousands of pound millstone and it was cast into the sea. What's gonna happen if you're tied to a millstone that's thrown into the sea? You're gonna stink. <laughs> and you're not coming back up for air. Like it is a guaranteed death. And Jesus says that if temptation comes through you to one of his little ones, who are the little ones? These, these are people that aren't yet as mature in following Jesus. Uh, they're, they're children in their faith. If you cause a child in their faith to sin, if you bring temptation to them, it would be better if you tied a millstone around your neck and were thrown into the sea and died. It's pretty strong language, right, from Jesus? But what's Jesus articulating? How it's important that if we're following Jesus that we remember that other people are watching us. Do you remember Paul's words? He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. If you're a disciple of Jesus, other people are watching you. Your children, your grandchildren, your coworkers, your teammates, your classmates. And so there are times when someone else is just starting to follow Jesus and they're watching you. And if you live in a way that's contrary to what God's best is, you may be able to navigate that, but they may not understand and, and, and it may cause them to sin. It may pull them further away from God. And that's what Jesus is warning against, being the one through whom temptation comes. And so he encourages them. Verse three, pay attention, be vigilant, watch yourself, be on guard. Probably what Jesus is getting at, according to scholars and historians, is that a disciple of Jesus, that they weren't careful a mature follower of Jesus may choose to believe some false teaching from another teacher or prophet. In the process, they may start to lean towards things that aren't like in keeping with what God's best is. And someone who's watching them starts to follow and it takes them away from God. We might be talking about a crisis of faith here for people based upon how someone's living. But even if that's not the case, uh, there's enough in the rest of the New Testament, particularly Paul's letters, that encourage us that we have to be careful as disciples with how we live our lives. Because there are sometimes things that we're able to do without sinning that someone who's just starting to follow Jesus may think that they can do and it may actually cause them to stumble and fall. In Paul's letter to the Romans and Paul, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he warns them about idol meat in particular. In Corinth, it was popular for when people worshiped these pagan gods, these false gods, they would sacrifice meat to them. Well, if you were a new convert and you previously had worshiped this false god and you sacrificed meat and you used to eat that meat as part of your religious worship, and then now you've come to follow Jesus and, and you're, this person you're looking to as an example of faith is now eating meat, their conscience is clear, but you're thinking, well, maybe it's okay to worship this deity. Maybe it's okay to worship this pagan god. And it causes you to stumble and fall away from him. Paul warns against that. And we as followers of Jesus have to be vigilant because there are things, especially if you're a mature follower of Jesus, that you may have come to a place that you can do that someone just starting to follow Jesus, it would cause them to stumble and fall. So, so as Jesus is helping the disciples pack their bags, he's helping us pack our bag for this adventure race of following him. He's saying, be careful. Be careful about how you live your life. 
that you don't cause other people to stumble and fall. Can I just be really candid with you a way that this shows up for us? Alcohol is a hot topic. I I will not tell you that there's anywhere in scripture where it says that if you drink a beer or you have a glass of wine that you sin and you're going to hell. It's not there. But what we do see is drunkenness. Uh, We do see the abuse of it. And what we do see is that there are many men and women who struggle with alcohol. Can I just be really vulnerable with you for a moment? There was a time when I was a student minister over in St. Joseph, Illinois. And I was hanging out with a group of guys and we were watching the UFC fights. And I had watched them with them on a number of occasions and some of the guys would bring a beer or two with them. And, and so I decided one night that I was going to drink part of a beer with them. Within a few months, one of my best friends got pulled over for a DUI. In the conversations with him, it broke my heart. He said that when he saw me drink, even though it was half of a beer, he felt like he could do the same. But what I didn't know is that he struggled with alcohol. And by him seeing me do it, he felt like it was okay. And then so my actions led him down a road. And I believe wholeheartedly that that I had to repent of that, and I did. We have to be careful with our life as followers of Jesus. How are we living? How are the people watching us looking to us? Jesus is imparting this wisdom to the disciples and to us and saying, listen, when we live for him, we have to be being guided by the right thing. In an adventure race, one of the stables for for every, every person participating is they have a compass. Why? Because when you're navigating the harsh terrain, when you're on a wide open sea and you can't see the place you're paddling to or sailing towards, when you're in the midst of the jungle, when you're in the highest mountains, when you're in the deepest valleys, there are times where it gets disorienting. And you don't know the right way to go unless you trust the compass. In the world's toughest race, there were a couple opportunities where someone was leading a team and the compass said, no, we need to go this way. We're heading northeast. And the leader said, you know what? That doesn't feel right. I'm gonna trust my instinct. And they got their team lost. Well, guess what happened? Everyone else following them got lost. And at least one of those cases, that team didn't even finish the race. They had to be extracted and they were eliminated because they didn't, follow the compass. As followers of Jesus, we have to have a compass. And you know what that compass is for us? The compass is the word of God. God's instructions are clear. And let's just be honest, there are times in our modern day where we think that maybe they're a little outdated. In our pride, we think that maybe we know better. In our pride, we think that, you know what, That just sounds kind of archaic. That doesn't feel right. I'm gonna trust my heart. But what we need is the true compass of his word to guide us, to show us. And if I, as a follower of Jesus, are allowing his compass to guide me, even when it doesn't feel good, then I know that those that are coming behind and learning to follow him by watching me aren't going to be led into those places of temptation. Jesus is imparting important wisdom for the adventure race of following him. What does he turn his attention to next? The end of verse three and verse four. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus seems to just jump to a completely different subject. He says, if you're a disciple of Jesus, 
and you see another disciple of Jesus, your brother, that word brother is really intentional here, it implies relationship. What's important that we're about to hear, it's all in the context of relationship, okay? It's all because you know this other disciple you've been journeying with, they care about you, you care about them. He says, if that brother sins, if that sister sins, what do you do? You rebuke them. That's a strong word. What does it mean to rebuke? It means to to give a strong word of correction to somebody. Jesus is saying, as a disciple of Jesus on this road, if you wanna live rightly, if you wanna finish the race, you need to be willing to say the hard thing to other followers of Jesus when they're sinning. And what happens when you're rebuked? You should repent. The word repentance simply is this picture of an about face. And so what happens is you have one follower of Jesus who says, you know what, I wanna do things this way, God's way is over here, and so they're, they're, they're on the wrong course, and so the other disciple says to them, listen, I think you're doing things wrong. You're not doing things God's, doing things God's way. And so that, that disciple says, okay, you know what, you're right. I repent. I'm gonna turn back. I'm gonna do things his way. So a disciple of Jesus rebukes his brother when he or she sins and repents when they've been rebuked. And what happens when that sin has occurred against you and that person repents, we, we forgive is what Jesus says. Can, can, we just, can we just be really honest for a moment? These are really hard behaviors in America, aren't they? We've grown up hearing from our earliest days, mind your own business, right? Don't judge me. You can't tell me what's right. You do you right? What Jesus is advocating here is not judgment. What is judgment? Judgment is when you try to determine someone else's motives. You can't know the motives in someone else's heart. Judgment is when you try to determine what's the eternal destiny of someone. Are they going to live eternally with God or be damned eternally? Like that's not up for us to decide. We don't get to play judge and jury. We don't get to be God. So what is Jesus advocating? He's saying that there are times when you have seen clearly in scripture that this is what God says and your brother or sister, who you have a relationship with, again, the context is relationship, and you have to go to them and say, listen, what you're doing isn't right. We are so scared to do that in America. Now listen, I'm not saying that we, we, we correct someone when they're just doing something we don't like. I'm not saying that you correct someone when it's, they're doing something that's against your preference. We're talking about sin when it's clearly, this is what God says, they're living contrary to God's intention, you correct them. Why is that important in the body? Because it preserves the purity. It helps us know how to live rightly. We can't live this life alone. We need other followers of Jesus speaking truth into our lives. Again, I'll be vulnerable for a moment. Two years ago, we were in the process of hiring our associate, uh, Philip Davis. We had Philip and his wife, Sarah, over for dinner, we had Kurt and Denise. Kurt's been here a long time. Kurt's our Care and Connections guy. And we were all on the patio having cooked out and enjoying conversation. And my son Isaiah came out and was probably asking to play video games. I can't remember what he was asking. And I responded really harshly to him. Now, I didn't recognize that in the moment. But that next day, it was a Sunday, after I finished preaching, Kurt called me into his office and said, Craig, I want to tell you something. And I said, what's that, Kurt? And he said, I... I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I just want you to know that I observed something last night. And I said, what's that? And he said, you responded to Isaiah in a way that, that is not in keeping with what you should do as a, as a Christian father. 
And I'll tell you what happened in my mind in the moment, I started being defensive. But as Kurt articulated what was happening, I realized, you know what, he was right. And I didn't want to see that pattern continue. And I'm not going to tell you that I always respond to my boys in the right way, but I need men like Kurt. I need people like that to be willing to speak up and to rebuke me when I sin so that I can become the man that God wants me to be. You and I need people in our lives who will speak the truth to us. And when they, when they challenge us, we need to have repentant hearts to say, okay, you know what, you're right. I'm gonna turn back and I'm gonna follow God. And when people sin against us and they hurt us, we need to be people full of grace who will extend forgiveness again and again and again. When I think about the adventure race, one of the things that, that all adventure racers have, and I only have one pair, but they have multiple pairs of shoes. Why? Because the terrain is so varied. There are shoes for biking. There are shoes for climbing. There are shoes for hiking. There are shoes for running. They have the right things because the terrain is so varied. And they, without the right shoes, uh, it's a dangerous trip. And if you and I are not people who will rebuke and repent and forgive, it's a dangerous journey as a disciple of Jesus. And so as Jesus moves towards the cross, he's imparting these essential instructions. He says, listen, yes, have the right compass. But then make sure your, your feet are fitted with the right things. Be people are willing to rebuke in love and repent when you're wrong and forgive when someone has wronged you. And I don't know about you, but man, as a disciple of Jesus in 2020, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. There are people in your life that need you in a loving way to, to rebuke them when they're wrong. There are times when you need to hear a hard word from somebody else and repent. And there are times when every single one of us need to extend forgiveness when someone has wronged us so that bitterness and division doesn't destroy. What's next? Verses five and six. So imagine you're a disciple. Uh, you've heard Jesus talk about uh, woe to you that no temptation come through you or else it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Okay, thanks for that, Jesus. Um, and imagine that he then followed that up with rebuke, repent, and then forgive. You're like, oh man, this is incredibly hard. Here's what the disciples, how they respond. Verse five. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They demanded Jesus, man, who can do this? Increase our faith Grow our faith. Will you upsize it, Jesus? Will you, will you give me a large? Like, all I have is a small faith. Will you make it a large? Will you make it an extra large? Like, 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 will you give me more? And what does Jesus say? Verse six. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, really tiny, just a little bit, you could say to this mulberry tree, uh, the black mulberry tree in the Middle East has deep, penetrating roots. So if you have a little, little bit of faith, like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this deeply rooted, implanted tree, be uprooted and go into the sea and would obey you. What a powerful picture. What Jesus is telling the disciples is, guys, listen, you don't need more faith. You just need to hold on and hold out with the faith that you have. Listen, once you, once you come to a place of faith where you believe that God is real, that he has a purpose for your life, that he made you whole through the blood of Jesus Christ, then you just have to hold on to that. And then come whatever may, disease, pandemics, contentious elections, cancer diagnoses, uh, disgruntled children, rebellion, and the list goes on and on. You just keep holding on because you know that God has made a way. 
You don't need an increase. So often I think we, we pray, God, will you just give me more faith? Will you, give me, like, will, you, will you give me the faith of Abraham and the faith of Elijah and the faith of Moses and the faith of the disciples? No, just, just keep believing. Hold on and hold out. Well, when you look at the adventure racers, What's really interesting is when you watch their mealtimes and you watch them on the trip, they don't have gallons of water. They just have the right amount of hydration and the right food. It's not that they have this abundance, they just have the right things. As followers in Jesus, we just need to hang on to our faith and our belief in who he is and what he's done and what he will do. And that's enough to help us navigate the treacherous waters that surround us and the, 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 the dangerous terrain that we embark upon as his followers. We just keep holding on and we keep holding out and then he does something incredible. I know story after story of disciples of Jesus who have just held on and held out and eventually, usually not right away, they see how God is doing a marvelous thing as they've just kept clinging to him. So again, this adventure race of following Jesus, he's packing the bag, the compass, you know, uh, let's not uh, steer off course and tempt anybody, let's rebuke, let's, let's repent, let's forgive, let's hold on and hold out in faith. And, and then Jesus continues and ends this section with a parable. In this parable, in verses seven through 10, on the surface, I'm just gonna tell you, I'm gonna read it, and if you're listening, you're gonna think, man, this is harsh. But I'll explain more in a moment. Verse seven, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? So the picture is this. Uh, you have a servant who's working for you. Uh, they've done their job in the field for the day. He says, would any of you, when that happens, just invite the servant in, have them sit down, and just kind of give them a nice meal for all the hard work they've done? Jesus says, no, will you rather not say to the servant, prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? And then, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And then Jesus ties it back together to the disciples. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So here's the picture, and this is hard for us. We see Jesus saying, if you were a master and you had a servant, and they worked hard all day, and they got done at the end of the day, would you, would you make a meal for them and just kind of thank them for what they did? No. Wouldn't you also say, go ahead and make my meal and uh, get dressed in the right clothes and clean up the dishes? That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? And would you even clap for them afterwards? No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because they'd only done what they were charged with doing. Why this story is hard for us is because when we hear the word servant, you and I immediately go back to our history books. And we picture people of color on plantations being treated as less than animals, having no choice, being bought and sold like they're a commodity. But that's not the type of servant that Jesus is mentioning here. We have to get rid of that American picture, which is so horrible, and, and, and rewind and say, what was, what was servitude like in Jesus' day? 
And, and the word for servant here is the same word that Paul uses to describe himself when he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. It's the Greek word doulos. It means bond servant. You know what a bond servant does? A bond servant willingly says, I'm going to give myself in service to you. I'm going to volunteer myself to you. I will serve you. I will do A, B, C, D, E, F, all of those for you. And in return, you will provide for me and take care of me. It was a voluntary by choice. He bonded himself. He joined that master's household by choice because the master would do for him. And in return, he would do these things for the master. So when Jesus tells the story, he says, if your servant who's bonded to you, who's agreed to do these things, only does part of their job, are you gonna stop short of having them fulfill their whole responsibility? No, because you're keeping your end of the deal as the master. Won't you have them complete their duties? Yeah, you will. And will you applaud them at the end of the day? No, because they're only doing what they said that they would do. It's all part of the agreement. How does this relate to discipleship? Jesus says in the same way, you should see that you're unworthy servants. His point, I'm your master. I'm your rabbi. I've invited you to experience life in the full. I've told you I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And you've agreed to come and to follow me. And so just keep following me. Follow me in humility. Understanding that there's nothing in you that's deserving, but I've chosen you and, and you're worthy because I say you're worthy, because I care about you. Jesus is, is calling this parable to humility, that they would clothe themselves in humility. They remember who they are because of whose they are. They would live their life in light of all that God has done for them and knowing that uh, in and of themselves they're nothing, but because of him they're everything. It's all about the relationship. That's what Jesus is calling them to. So as they move towards these hardest days of following him, he says, remain humble. Again, when you watch one of these adventure races, one of the things that sticks out to you is that they, they, they always have the right clothing for whatever they're encountering. If they're in the woods, they typically have long pants on to keep themselves from insects. If they're out in the sun, they've got these, uh, those shirts that you know, filter out the UV rays. They've got hats or they've got gloves. They have the right clothing. And what, what God calls us to do is to clothe ourselves as disciples in humility. To remember that as we follow Jesus, we're only here by his invitation. He's providing for us, and so we just keep honoring him. We just keep following him. We just keep serving him. But do you see what Jesus has done in these 10 verses? He said, okay, if you're gonna follow me, let me just pack your bag with some things. Make sure that temptation does not come through you to another follower of Jesus. Make sure you know what's right and you do what's right. Have the compass. And make sure you're willing to do the hard thing. Put on whatever is required for that terrain. If it's to rebuke someone, if it's to repent when you've been rebuked, if it's to forgive, make sure you're doing that. Make sure you hold on and you hold out in faith. And then just keep following me with humility, knowing that I'm gonna take care of you. You just keep being faithful. Here's the beautiful scene that occurs at the end of the world's toughest race. Out of 66 teams that started, not every team finishes. But you see team after team. It took them between six and 11 days to complete the race, come in. They are bruised. In some cases, they have broken bones. They have cuts. They're tired. Sometimes they're sunburned. 
Sometimes parts of their body are swelling. But as they make that final push up onto the beach into the finish line, guess what they're doing? They're smiling. Because there is joy in the adventure no matter how hard it is. May you and I remember that as we are on this journey with Jesus and we're completing this race with him, that there's joy even in the midst of the struggle. But when we look at the packed bag today and when we say, well, what am I missing? Maybe you look at your life and you've not been trusting in the compass of God's word. And so maybe for you, it's just saying, God, I'm gonna get back to even if it doesn't feel right, I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna follow you. Maybe for you, you know that you need to be more open to having a gentle word of rebuke with other disciples of Jesus that you're in relationship with. Maybe you need to be open to receiving that word. Maybe you need to extend forgiveness to someone who's hurt you and they've openly repented. Maybe you just need to hold on today and just keep turning to God saying, God, I don't know how, but you're gonna make a way. Maybe you just need to be reminded that we are only because he is that we're his servants and he's providing for us and we'll just trust him one day at a time. But I can assure you as we keep packing our bag and we keep following that there will be joy at the end of the journey. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you for helping us navigate your word. Um, The reality is, is there are times when we need help piecing it together and seeing exactly what you want and and what you desire. And so God, thank you for showing us and God, teach us. I pray that you would help the disciples in this room see maybe what's missing from their bag and and vow to make sure it's included and to, to ask you to help them with that. And Father, for those that have yet to follow you, um, will you help them to see that although the journey is hard, that the adventure is worth it. Uh, Guide us, Father, in your truth, and it's in your name we pray, amen.